0: Hi everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon. The show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's show is Lydia Rui, who wrote, directed and edited her latest short film, This Perfect Day. We jumped into Lydia's film festival experience, how she got into filmmaking while studying media culture communications at NYU, Working as Beyoncé's videographer on the Miss Carter tour and the cultural impact of Crazy Rich Asians. So, if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, hope you enjoy my interview with Lydia. So, you're on the festival circuit with your short film, This Perfect Day. How's it going so far? It's been really,
1: really lovely, actually. Tribeca was an incredible first festival experience. Um, Last year I did do Doc NYC, but this has been my first um, festival of such a high caliber, for narrative especially, and it's just been really relentless.
0: Was it last weekend
1: you were there? Tribeca was the premiere, and then um, in a few days actually, next week will be Inside Out in Toronto, but unfortunately I'm not able to attend, but I've heard really amazing things about Inside Out. It's um, Canada's largest queer film festival. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, apparently it's just like a great event. So um, I'm really bummed I can't make it.
0: Do people tend to sort of reach out after your films sort of like played and say, hey, like I saw this film. Uh, Maybe it's sort of an audience member or like a producer or some sort of like a member of the creative community sort of afterwards.
1: Yeah, it's been really lovely. Um, I've had uh, people who have found me. um, I'm not sure how they found me, but they'll reach out to me and just say how much they were affected by the film. Like people who are other crew, like composers, for example. Right. Um, financiers uh, have reached out to me, um, production companies, management companies, and other festivals as well. So there's been a, it's right. like a nice little, um, it's a nice afterlife, yeah. Through the through the screenings and Tribeca, especially, were really good because they do five screenings mm-hmm. um, for public and one industry and press. Yeah. And they were all sold out. So they're really kind of proactive about getting those
0: seats filled. I'm assuming you were there at all five screenings. Were you doing Q&As afterwards with sort of audience members as well?
1: Yeah, I was there for four because mm-hmm. filmmakers are discouraged to attend the press and industry screenings oh, really? of their okay. own. Yeah, but I did Q&As
0: for the other four. In terms of sort of the audience questions, were there any ones that sort of surprised you? Were there any sort of like left field sort of questions?
1: No, 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 no because the programme itself is six films and the other filmmakers were there as well. Right. And Actually, there's this other amazing film called Maya, who was in my program, who actually won the best narrative short film oh, okay. award.
0: So in terms of sort of like programming um, there, sort of like short films that are programmed in your block, I'm going to probably get the acronym wrong. LGBTQ. I think there's another letter on there as well. Um, together, or was it all quite sort of like? Um...
1: Yeah, no, they, they weren't all um, LGBTQ plus. They were just shorts <laughs> about expressing yourself, I guess, um, about identity and coming to
0: terms with yourself you moved from Hong Kong to Singapore to attend an international Australian school and that seems like a lot to unpack in terms of location language and friends and I just wondered in terms of your passion for filmmaking did that help you sort of adjust
1: no not at all I didn't um I didn't do I didn't have like an art background at all i transferred into film after junior year of university actually so i didn't get to explore that side of me until much later i feel Um, i don't have like film background or anything really i did um drama up until year mm, 10 maybe Mm -hmm. i did act in like school plays right the school plays didn't have roles for um to like, you know, I could never play Juliet or anything because I'm Asian. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, was it, I understand from my Asian friends, actually that pursuing a career in the arts isn't something that's generally, and I stress generally here, that's actually understood or supported by some Asian parents. And I just wondered in terms of your sort of like peer group um, and your experience, is that something that you kind of sort of encountered as well?
1: Yeah, I, I think um, I, I'm really lucky that my mum from an early age, I kind of always resisted going into business the mm. way that my mom is in business. Um, but there's always kind of an undertone of the need to be very financially successful, <laughs> and yeah. that success is equated with commercial success. Mm. Um, so when I first told her that I was transferring into film, she, di- she was... <laughs> Admittedly, like, um, media law. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I'm like, no, 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 like, uh, no, like directing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, you know, understandable because she came from absolutely nothing herself. Um, both my grandparents barely graduated from middle school. Um, Mm. and the only reason why she is where she is is because of incredible hard work and scholarships and, Mm. um, just you know real survival and so I think yeah I think there is a bit of uh, a bit of that there's not been any kind of there's not been any career artists right in my in the entirety of my family histories.
0: Oh wow so you're the, the first one I mean I wanted to sort of like jump into your um, experience studying at NYU and what was that like an international student?
1: Yeah I really loved it I was I was 18 when I arrived in New York I didn't mm-hmm. have any family there um, and nobody came with me but i immediately stayed in the third north dorm and the dormitory environment just kind of was a really was a really great experience and a very easy easy way to make friends and Mm. kind of discover american different pockets of american social structures i guess right (laughs) um i was originally studying media culture communications mm-hmm. and found that I ended up taking a lot of non-media culture communications classes right. and it's kind of there's no cohesion really mm-hmm. when you're studying a non-film course you're kind of just like going to these different classes that you've elected to take mm-hmm. on where as soon as I discovered film and discovered Tish and um, transferred into Tish was much more a communal environment Mm. You know, all your classes are in the building, um, there's the Tisch Lobby and Lounge and everybody like gets to know each other and everybody works on each other's projects and um, I was really lucky because I was an internal transfer I think I mm. ended up meeting a lot of the grad students so right. I actually ended up editing a lot of grad films.
0: Was editing, um, was it the first thing in terms of, sort of like filmmaking, did you get bit by the editing bug? I mean, what kind of came first for you? What was your sort of, like, first love in that regard?
1: Editing and shooting at the same time. I definitely got thrown into a lot of shooting, like, videography. I would never, like, dare to claim I'm a cinematographer just because I feel like cinematographers, they're, like, painters of light and they're so technically advanced. And I'm not technically geared. Like, the way that I learn is definitely by intuition more so. But in terms of composition and a basic understanding of lighting and things, I think my peers naturally gravitated towards me and would just ask me to shoot things. Mm -hmm. And same with editing. I remember the very first film class I took was a documentary course and um, like a summer documentary course. And my professor was like, oh, wow, you're doing all this like cross-cutting and stuff naturally. This is like what filmmaking is. And other people just naturally asked me to
0: edit stuff it just came sort of like naturally you're just like doing things you didn't necessarily talk to you but maybe you were sort of replicating maybe sort of stuff you'd seen so sort of before subconsciously in terms of your sort of editing
1: yeah i think it was just subconscious but again i'm not like technically gifted right. so i i wouldn't say that you know there's like editors who can do all these like really flashy things mm. um and they also understand after effects and all that you right. know i feel like i'm much more just narrative driven
0: mm-hmm what was the first program you learned to edit on final cut because it was really intuitive right. final cut
1: was final cut seven yeah. was really intuitive I remember when final 10 came out everybody went crazy mm. and then when um and then I was actually in the last year of NYU that still had sight and sound film on shot on film mm-hmm. so they'd give you black tri-x reversal 16 mil film mm. and then you would actually edit it on the steam deck mm. so in my year I actually had a room full of steam decks, right um and you'd have to you know physically cut and splice together films just like little four minute things yeah. that you'd shoot in one day but then now there's um that's all gone it's all been replaced by computers
0: that's so. <laughs> kind of sad because i remember when i was studying it's film shame, back in but... the day we had to sort of do 16 more and edit and i sort of stein back and then you'd have your sound on the magic strips next to it and you'd have to like splice it and like stick it together
1: yeah that's actually really advanced we never we never got to use sound oh, okay. um it was like images only uh oh, nice. but i think you learn a kind of economy in your storytelling when mm. you are forced to learn how to
0: together just in terms of like your sort of like film education i just wondered because obviously new york is like a hotbed for sort of independent and -and up-and-coming cinema i know one of my most sort of transformative cinematic experiences while i was studying in new york was at the ifc center on 6th ave and i randomly walked Mm. into um harmony crin's mr lonely without knowing anything about it and it, it just like blew my mind and i just wondered was there any particular moment when you were studying that you managed to get to see some an unexpected sort of like film treasure that just really sort of like changed your perspective on filmmaking
1: This is not really an answer but like I do remember when I was 15 Mm. or 16 going to see The Fountain in the cinema by Darren Aronofsky and Mm. that was a really game-changing moment for me that just like really shook me from the inside and I immediately went and downloaded Clint Mansell's score and tried to make my my friends watch it and when they watched it they just were like this is so boring.
0: (laughs) What? The Fountain's amazing. I love that film.
1: Um, I know it's like, actually, I absolutely. um, But you know, I was also like a sentimental teenager. So mm. I could I could understand why some with why some of my friends at the time maybe didn't didn't quite vibe with it but I saw Melancholia that was pretty amazing and I also saw Enter the Void
0: oh brilliant yeah I love Enter the Void my, as well which was my first
1: Gaspar Noé film I saw.
0: they're quite esoteric really films amazing. though and also uh, as I mentioned sort of Harmony Korine and obviously Gaspar Noé and also Lars Trier. they are um seen as sort of like problematic I know <laughs> my counterpoint to that is like yes that's all that's all very sort of true but in terms of just sort of of unabashed vision and creative oeuvre and, and mania I guess to them there's just something that's just purely sort of like cinematic
1: yes I also loved the darkness
0: mm.
1: of, um, I think I think it was my first year at NYU as well was when drive came out as mm-hmm. well yeah and like I just remember
0: everybody was blown away by that it's amazing he's actually um Nicholas one reference actually colorblind
1: so he's like, really drift these bold visions. Mm.
0: In terms of where you feel that your creative energy sort of that comes from, and not to get sort of like too personal, but do you feel for you, is that, does that come from a place of sort of light or, or darkness? Or where do you think that, where do you sort of locate that within your sort of self that you feel you sort of gravitate?
1: Oh, uh, I definitely think there was a selfish part of me. I saw the power of film to bridge a gap mm-hmm. to other people. Right. Like, it was, in a way, selfish because I wanted to just feel like I was transcending the barrier of right. the self, you know. Because from the very beginning, from the very first things that I made, just in, the, in my small little exercises, mm-hmm. I could make people cry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right.
1: I could, make, I could make people feel the way that I felt. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, yeah, it felt very empowering right but i think i don't use it like in a in a sadistic way i think i use it in a cathartic way right because i personally love i love healing pain Mm -hmm. i think the way that nostalgia can be painful i really love that kind of emotion that's the in-between where it's like sadness tinged with optimism and Mm -hmm. happiness or optimism tinged with like a little bit of sadness
0: you were um, Beyonce's videographer for her Mrs. Carter tour. And there's one particular sort of like scene that I think is sort of a nice follow on from that was the moment when she stops the show and she finds that terminal young girl in the audience and her dying wishes to dance with her. And from the small clip that I watched, it seems mm. a very sort of joyful, intimate, and heartbreaking sort of scene played on the biggest stage imaginable. And I kind of wonder if you, being a filmmaker, being behind the camera and actually capturing that moment that there isn't like, there's no sort of like, oh, can we do that again kind of thing? I mean, what kind of stays with you about that particular um, moment the most?
1: God, that I was able to capture the climax of this young girl's life, mm. basically, or one of the one of the pivotal climaxes in her life, mm. because she passed away, you know, not, not that long after. Oh, okay. And, and she-, she was a very... very mystic spirit and mm. she said to me you know when I die because she knew that she was dying mm. um when I die I want there to be a celebration of, of my life and right. she just really had this amazing just an amazing
0: spirit yeah I'm sorry I didn't mean to
1: um oh that's okay
0: <laughs> but it yeah it, I mean I I mean I was yeah, sort of about watching out myself I've never
1: actually like really spoke
0: about it (laughs) okay um are you okay
1: no i'm okay okay thank you
0: i just wondered in terms of that time that you spent um working with sort of beyonce and catching those sort of like moments on tour with her i just wondered in terms of like now looking back on that particular um experience I guess my question would be So somebody's going to embark on a big a big tour, that somebody who's going to step into sort of similar shoes as you, maybe they're going to do like Travis Scott or Drake or Cardi B. Is there anything, any sort of advice you'd, you feel that would be really sort of helpful for people that were, that were, were going to do sort of similar to you?
1: Yeah, I would say, um, well, first of all, travel light. Right. <laughs> uh, make sure that you have, and this is actually a piece of advice given to me, me as well was wear all black (laughs) okay um just wear all black because you to be as invisible as possible and also then people can't tell if you haven't had time to do your laundry because you (laughs) won't have time to do your laundry really uh be prepared to have a camera on you like 16 to 20 hours a day every Mm -hmm. day and be up at night you know just like doing select and things basically it'll like really push you um physically Mm -hmm. Uh, make sure that if you are in a relationship or um any kind of situation they're very supportive
0: Mm -hmm. because
1: it's a hard one for most people to understand right just be as open as possible try to stay healthy and yeah just be yourself be really natural as well
0: right
1: i think i was very shy and not so confident you know i was 23 mm. at the time mm. so i was the second youngest person on tour right um i wish i, I was a bit more brazen and mm. brave and confident just say just be yourself and be confident
0: so just jumping into this perfect day as we sort of mentioned before you'd screened it try back in it. and it's also like the festival that i've spoken to before with other sort of like filmmakers so um I think it's like probably the biggest or one of the biggest sort of of like platforms to have your film screened at. So that's a really amazing achievement. Um and I just sort of like wondered were there any other sort of like ones you sort of had in mind when you were setting out setting out?
1: Tribeca was actually one of the first film festivals we submitted to. Mm-hmm. We'd only submitted to three festivals. Oh okay. Like Tribeca's the second, I think. I think we submitted to the late submission for oh, South right. by Southwest. Yeah. But we had missed the Clermont-Ferrand cutoff date, mm-hmm. and I think that would have been a very cool festival. Um, it's obviously a very prestigious festival, mm. and at present, we have been lucky to have received festival invitations, right? Um, to submit. Oh, okay. But otherwise, I think we've submitted to we've submitted to about twenty festivals. Um. Um, but I've just been doing all the festival submissions myself whilst doing whilst also doing the festival submissions for my documentary, This Is Yara, which premiered last year as well. Yeah. So that's still ongoing. Um, And it's actually quite, yeah, it's quite time-consuming submitting to
0: festivals. It is. The amount of paperwork and fees and stuff, yeah
1: yeah exactly. and just like the mental calculations of whether the cost is worth it.
0: And also, I guess like figuring out sort of traveling to these sort of festivals because I understand that if you've got a feature they'll they've got a stipend, they'll pay you to go. but I think like short films, it's kind of like you have to you have to kind of like get there by any means sort of like necessary.
1: Actually I received a screen Australia government grant to come oh, okay. to Tribeca. So that was really nice. Yeah. That yeah. covered my costs for travel and accommodation and the DCP as well.
0: So where did you um, shoot did you shoot in Melbourne? Am correct in assuming that?
1: Yeah, yeah, Melbourne. It's uh, like was literally just, you know, the all the store scenes. That was all shot in one day.
0: Okay. It's like
1: literally just a weekend we made it. So what
0: was your sort of elevator pitch for this perfect day?
1: A young teen walks into a store, and it's about this moment where expectation meets reality, I guess. Right. And um, it's very small. It's literally six minutes without Mm -hmm. the credits. (laughs) It's basically just a moment unfolding in real time. Right. Um, Yeah so hard to talk about because it's so small.
0: There's something that's really sort of like nice and intimate about it. And I just sort of was interested in your work as a documentary filmmaker actually influence your style and shot selection for this particular film. Because it, in a way it does feel there is an air of sort of documentary to it.
1: Yeah, um, except everything was storyboarded. I storyboarded myself everything. So I'm very meticulous about my shots. Right, um, And it played in the edit exactly as I storyboarded as well, right. no changes. I think in terms of the perspective, um, I'm always asking myself whose
0: perspective am
1: I telling this from?
0: What was the sort of best part and worst part of actually editing the film yourself?
1: I edited myself,
0: mm-hmm. which I enjoy
1: because it meant I could just do it quickly. Right. And I had control. I, you know, wasn't kind of beholden to the schedule of other pe- right. people and so i could just immediately dive in and very quickly and i did depend on friends for feedback mm-hmm. and i had very good feedback from friends that helped me yeah just see that i could keep seeing it yeah. basically and um yeah it went really quickly it was just i love i love i love editing <laughs> so, right.
0: but yeah right. it was just nice to just do it Um, And did you say, did you shoot it over two days, did you say?
1: Yeah, it was two days. But basically, it was more like one and a half days. Right. Because one day was the car scene. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were kind of beholden to the weather, Mm. which in Melbourne literally went from rain, sun, hail in one day. (laughs) Right. Okay. And then, um, yeah, there was like a giant storm. (laughs) And then the next day um we
0: shot all the store all
1: the interior stuff
0: um obviously i don't again sort of like spoilers but in terms of the way that you shoot michelle she's a very sort of photogenic young woman but there's also like an edge to her as well um and i wondered if that was something in terms of in terms of sort of that casting process was there a particular look or vibe that you were going for when you were casting that character
1: oh yeah a hundred percent like as soon as i Saw Michelle. I knew they were the one. So I had actually. So we only had two weeks to cast, and I had reached out to agencies asking for Asian or Eurasian actors. Mm -hmm. Also reached out to modelling agencies because in in Melbourne there's kind of a real nice scene of people who are diverse Mm -hmm. and edgy and have that kind of. Vibe, very kind of specific urban Melbourne vibe. I guess that was definitely the vibe that I was going for. And I had seen Michelle on a Star Now website, which is the casting website, Mm -hmm. and and marked them and written to them, and they had gone back to me. But that same day, I went to a friend's screening, Mm -hmm. and in the foyer was Michelle as a volunteer oh wow and i was like pretty sure that's something i saw this morning on the website yeah. so i'm definitely gonna approach them after the screening mm. i sat down into the screening and they had come and um sat in the seat in front of me mm-hmm. and i was like okay perfect when the film's over i'll reach out to them
0: yeah. and
1: the lights come up and they're not there <laughs> and i was like oh no i missed my opportunity yeah. shame on me and I go to the bathroom, and there's like a long line for the bathroom. And as it's finally my turn to get to walk into a stall, out yeah. comes Michelle out of the stall. And I'm like, Okay, <laughs> this is this is gonna sound weird, yeah. <laughs> but um, I've been semi-stalking you, <laughs> and will you please audition with me? And Michelle is not even an actor. Right. Um, she is a film student, mm-hmm. also uh, into directing. So yeah, it was it was just like really serendipitous. Actually quite shy when they came in for the first audition, but it right. was. Just a vibe. I just knew that they were right. So
0: because it's only sort of touched on very briefly the opening that there is a sort of same sex couple. How important for you sort of a filmmaker to tell that particular story? Was it you know for you to sort of have that at the front of the sort of um, film? There's
1: not enough representation mm-hmm. of those kind of relationships, and I don't and I don't think that it needs to be a focal point mm-hmm. of a film right. to have that. Yeah, as the characters, you know, mm-hmm. like I feel like so many. Queer films are like it's all about that. Mm-hmm. But I just make films where they're just normal, mm-hmm. like everybody else. Right. It's just they have like other inner lives beyond just that. Mm-hmm. And I am also myself non-straight. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so why not represent more of that? You know. I'm um, the sort of same way. It's something that sort of. I guess it needs to be talked about this it's important but in a way like it's not important just because you have like queer characters or non-binary characters in that doesn't need to be the focal point of their um identity or the storytelling or even that person's at all. So I think for me like that was a very like nice element to the film
1: thank you I really appreciate that I'm glad yeah I, I share your sentiment completely
0: I'd just love to get your hot take on how you'd get more women and minorities and underrepresented um, communities into sort of filmmaking and what you kind of see as the biggest barrier to entry in 2019.
1: There's several things. I mean, access to resources, um, access to mentorship, perhaps also chip on the shoulder of other people who mm-hmm. feel like their seat of privilege is being challenged. Also, a fear among our own minority groups that there is a finite set of seats and mm. we are all fighting for one minutiae mm-hmm. piece of the pie. And the voices that get prioritized are voices that are tokenized. Right. I think is also another challenge in that in a lot of spaces the ultimate juries are still dictated from a white perspective Mm -hmm. of what a diverse is Mm -hmm. and I think that is also very problematic.
0: I mean I'd be interested in your sort of take in terms of of like Asian sort of like cinema representation there was a lot said about Crazy Rich Asians just wondered in terms of like what your thoughts and feelings were about that.
1: Um, I think Crazy Rich Asians whilst Problematic still did a great, um, it you know opened a floodgate for mm. for Asian storytelling. I think so. I think it's unfair to expect one film to represent mm. the multitude of Asian experiences. And I think arguments like, like that were missing the point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just happy now to see that uh, financiers and studios are willing to just give Asian storytellers more opportunity because I I know um, the filmmakers behind the filmmaker and the author behind Crazy Rich Asians Mm -hmm. really struggled uh, when they were financing the film to get studios to understand that they wanted an Asian lead. Right. (laughs) Like they were like, let's film, but let's have, um, let's have the heroine be, be white. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think you're getting the point. Yeah, yeah. completely missing but the actual this, entire story. Yeah, the whole yeah.
0: That's like yeah. You might as well not not make it then because that yeah. just just changes the story so so like significantly.
1: Yeah, I think in in like one part of you, I was listening. I think I think they uh, apparently one of the Hollywood um, execs that they spoke to was like, yeah, okay, this but like Emma Stone, right?
0: <laughs> like, oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean she's a terrific actress but yeah you're yeah, just like no absolutely. that just doesn't work on any level
1: yeah like you're completely missing the
0: point mm. so i think it's unfair to put so much i mean in terms of i mean it's not the equivalent of, um sex in the city is representation of like the white experience in any way shape or form like it's just sort of like pure fantasy in a way people who are asian who are criticizing
1: are even more kind of mm but but then again i think everybody is allowed to express their opinions and i think that you know people who do offer criticisms are then perhaps just shining a light on all the ways that future filmmakers can address issues that maybe crazy rich asians didn't have the opportunity to explore so i think it's it's in a way it's all good and i I guess in this industry you just have to have a really tough skin and mm. try not to read reviews <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah so um i had one final question for you what's your dream project
1: i, I only have projects which i'm working on which i'm hoping will be real mm-hmm. okay <laughs> but ultimately ultimately i would love to do a sci-fi on the scale of the matrix.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay. I think that would be so cool. Is there anything there that you, or anything about sort of like technology or future societies that really sort of grabs you um, at the moment?
1: Mm, I'm really interested in alienation and belonging. And I guess these kind of like cultures of outsiders that form together and Mm -hmm. um, overcome the bad alienation. And I love kind of these. I love multiverse stories. You know, if I Mm. if I could have directed the Golden Compass, my my own version, yeah, that whole trilogy, that would have been that would be actually probably like a dream.
0: Wow. (laughs) Well, it's probably due a remake, so hopefully, you know, in five years or six years' time, um, I'll be interviewing you again, and we'll be talking about the fact that you um, got to reboot the um, Golden Compass trilogy, or um, or you've got your own sort of, like, Matrix. <laughs> oh, yeah, better awesome. still, you're directing The Matrix 4. that That'd orphan. be amazing. Orphan stories. I love orphan stories, I realise. <laughs> so there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Lydia. Please do like and subscribe to the show on SoundCloud on YouTube, and drop a comment or two. And you can get in touch with me at the samling one on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.